the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. Weddings are, to me, amazing events. Having married off two daughters and a son, the son was easy. The two daughters was a totally different story. I didn't know these kinds of shows existed until my daughters were preparing to get married. But there's a show called Say Yes to the Dress. And I didn't know that women could be so mean as what I saw in that show. My daughters would watch it along with my wife daily. And some of the comments when these poor girls would try on wedding dresses, you thought, this can't be family. This has to be their enemies they invited for the, for the, the showing. Um, I mean, one woman looked at her daughter and said, your caboose is too big for that dress. And I just thought, are you going to invite your mom to your wedding? This is, weddings are just, and then the preparation for a wedding, getting, getting all the, the details and all the things that you have to do. And I mean, it takes, it takes the skill of an engineer and a carpenter and a painter to prepare for your daughter's wedding, along with being a psychologist. And it is, it is it's an experience. And this morning, we're going to enter into a wedding experience. And I know, as even I'm talking, Chris and Jean Mays are preparing in just a couple of months for a wedding. And this story should be very real to him. And that's what this is. This is a narrative. This is a story. John is writing and he is describing his experience with Jesus going to a wedding. So read along with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the serpents, Serpents, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Father, we 
we come before you this morning once again needy, in need of your Spirit's illumination, your Spirit's opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear you speaking. Lord, as you are chatting with us this morning through your written word, help us to understand, help this church this morning to engage with you personally, Lord. May every person here feel a reverence for these words, the inspired words of God. And may each person here this morning leave this place once again seeing Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to show them Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this story at the beginning of John 2 is the last day of the first week of Jesus' ministry. The third day here refers to the seventh day of this amazing week. Day 5, as we saw in chapter 1 last week, day 5 was the day that Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and, and Jesus has this encounter with Nathaniel. And at that time, Jesus now has five disciples following after him. He's got Philip, he's got Nathaniel, he's got Andrew, he's got Simon, now called Peter, and he has John, the writer of this gospel. These five are now his disciples. And in this short time, this one week that we're coming to a close on, in this week, John the writer, John the evangelist, who has written this gospel, has used numerous titles to describe who Jesus is. In just one chapter, we see that he is the Lamb of God, the Baptizer, the Son of God, Rabbi, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the one found in the prophets and the Moses, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Word became flesh. Jesus is identified as all of these in John's opening opening chapter. And now chapter 2 opens another section in John's Gospel. And it's a section that is from chapter 2 all the way through to chapter the end of chapter 12. And that section is known as the Book of Signs. From chapter 13 through 20, it's known as the Book of Glory. It's the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. But these, these 12 chapters that we are, actually 11 chapters from 2 on, through the end of 12, are the book of signs where we see seven signs that that Jesus' story begins in Galilee. He is in Cana of Galilee. He is in this small town, but he ends up at the end of chapter 12 in Jerusalem, which is the climax of his ministry, because that is where, in the following week, he is crucified for our sins. These 11 chapters that we are going to be studying are organized around seven signs, which provide us with, and and these 11 chapters, if you read the 11 chapters, it kind of provides you with an an airplane view, a 35,000 foot view of the story that John is narrating. In, In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
the writers don't use the word signs to introduce what Jesus is doing. He, they use mir- the word miracles. And they do it to introduce specifically the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ and the defeat of Satan. They're bringing into the, reign, into the, the minds of the disciples and those who are, who are listening, the, the kingdom of God has come. But in John, John uses the word signs specifically to point to Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a book of really Christology. Whereas the, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are more end time theology, the kingdom of God. This book, John is wanting you and me to meet Jesus Christ. He's wanting you to see Jesus and so he's, in these 11 chapters, he's giving us a, a 35,000 foot view looking down over the seven signs and what they mean and, 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 and how they work in, in Jesus' ministry. Again, in the backdrop of all of this is John twenty thirty one, which we said each week, John Twenty thirty one. These things have been written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in His name. That's the backdrop of every chapter, of every verse in John's Gospel, that you might believe. And so, these signs that he writes about, starting with the wedding at Cana, the, the miracle of the water into wine, those signs are meant to point you to Jesus Christ. That you're to learn something about the Savior. That you're to encounter the Savior. You're to understand more about the Savior and who he is. He is trying to introduce you to this, this God, this man, and to say, and, and to help you understand what he's all about. These signs, like John's entire gospel, are a, are a signpost pointing the way and confronting us with the, the question that we have to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And as we drop down to a closer view, and we'll do that over the next number of weeks, chapters 2 through 4 kind of drop down further, not from 35,000 feet, but now you're a much closer view, where the the theme of chapters 2, 3, and 4, as you read them, you begin to see the theme of those three chapters John is, is giving is newness. So we see here, we're, we're talking about old, old you know, water and old purification being turned into new wine. And, and we read on in, in this chapter, we'll see the old temple versus the new temple. We'll read on in chapter 3, we'll see the old water of Jacob's well versus the living water of Jesus Christ. The old worship in Jerusalem in 4 versus, the wor- versus worshiping in spirit and in truth. The old has gone and the new has come. And that's the title of my message this morning. The old has gone and the new has come. 
And this morning, our view narrows even more. We're not at 35,000 feet. We're not at 10,000 feet. We are now at ground level. We are walking with Jesus. And we are seeing what John means as he begins this section on the old has gone, the new has come. We're beginning to see that as we walk and ground level with Jesus Christ and his disciples, he takes us to this place that is very familiar to many of us, if not all of us. And that's a wedding. It's just a wedding. It's not something, some ritual, religious ritual in the temple. It's, it's a wedding. Now, if there's one thing consistent to every wedding, at least every wedding that I have ever attended, and now at 60, I have a lot of weddings that I have attended, is that there are no perfect weddings. If you're planning on getting married, plan on something going wrong. I have watched bridesmaids. I have watched groomsmen. I have watched even the groom himself faint and keel over as if they are dead. (laughs) I have listened to a pastor performing the ceremony forget the bride and groom's names and just call them the young couple. (laughs) I have performed a wedding where as I was ready to pronounce this couple husband and wife, out of nowhere came a big clap of thunder and all the lights went out making the room totally dark. And I have been to my own daughter's weddings. (laughs) No wedding is perfect. And this wedding is no different. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the ceremony had already taken place. And we are now brought in to the reception, which is typically the relaxing part of the wedding where everybody's just having a grand time. And there are a few things to consider here. Now, look at this. Jesus is invited along with his disciples. So they didn't just show up to the wedding. It wasn't like they were wedding crashers. They were hungry. They needed a place to go. And there happened to be a wedding in Cana. And so Jesus and his five guys show up. No, they were invited along with his mother. So there's a good possibility, strong possibility, that this is either a family member or a friend that they are attending their wedding. And I I would think even more so because Mary, Jesus' mother, and and, and she's not named Mary here, but we know it is Mary. Jesus' mom is there as well. And she seems to have some motherly involvement, as most mothers do in a wedding, because she's telling Jesus the wine has run out. She probably has some responsibility in this wedding. There's a role that she has. And And understand this, in ancient times, the father of the bride did not pay for the wedding. What a great idea. (laughs) How how we got that wrong, I do not know. I want to know the guy who decided to make the change. Because back in ancient times, the groom was responsible for the wedding. What a better idea. Because I had two daughters. This, this, uh, in fact, I think we should reinstitute this idea. 
right now. <laughs> so it's the groom's responsibility to provide food and wine, enough food and wine, so that everybody would be satisfied, and when they went home, there would be leftovers. And Mary's concern that the wine has run out is serious, and it's important, because it was not uncommon in those days if a if a groom did not provide all that was needed at a wedding, if the wine ran out, or if the food ran out, it was, in a shame culture, a horrible faux pas. It was a serious mistake. So serious that at times in ancient Israel, and this, this season, if you ran out of wine or food, the guests would sue you. They would sue you. And that's one thing we could forget. We can pass on, unless I'm doing the suing, maybe. (laughs) So when Jesus is told by Mary, they have no wine, she is doing more than passing along bad news. She's expecting something from him. Now, in verse 4, my dad, my dad might have killed me if I spoke to my mom this way. And Jesus said to her, woman! (laughs) Could you imagine me telling my mom, woman, what do you want me to do? Which is how it it, it reads in English. Now, I I want you to know, um, although it appears he's treating her badly and with irritation, there is more here than meets the eye. And the Greek does not convey specifically the right, the, the right phrasing here. Uh, one, the NIV translates this, dear woman. And, um, it, and, and actually it has, and I enjoy saying this, it has a more southern feel to it because it really, could, you could use the word Ma'am, which would be much closer to the original Greek uh, in, in this, in a, in a manner of respect. He's not disrespecting his mother at this point. In fact, this word woman used here is the same that he uses in John 19.26, where he is on the cross and he looks down and says to Mary, Woman, behold your son, as he's looking at John, who writes this gospel, and he says to John, you know, John, behold your mother. He is now giving John responsibility. He is caring for his mom at that moment. It is a, an endearing moment as he is on the cross. It is a tender moment. And so when he says woman here, it's not as bad as our English makes it to be. But in asking his mom, what does this have to do with me? Gently, gently is she being rebuked by Jesus. So she is being rebuked by him because what has happened is she has missed his entrance into ministry and she has missed the relational change that's taken place between himself and his mother. 
He is establishing new guidelines in his relationship with his mom. Up until this time, Jesus is a natural part of his family. It appears that Joseph has passed away at this point. And Jesus, as the oldest, as the he's known as the carpenter now, not the son of Joseph, the carpenter. He's known as the carpenter. He seems to be providing primary care for his family. So it would not be unusual as the oldest for Mary to turn to him at this moment, since there seems to be a family wedding going on and say look we need help the wine has run out so john is setting all this up for us because this is the beginning of jesus's public ministry where mary is looking for help it's the beginning of the mission god has sent jesus on and it's in this moment that jesus begins to rightly distance himself from his mother and from all human agendas. The mission which must separate Jesus from all other loyalties, even loyalty to his mother, is this thing called the hour, which has not yet come. He is starting at this moment his true calling, his mission to follow after what the Father has told him to do. And so his mother's voice no longer supersedes, rather his heavenly Father's voice now leads here. He is starting his true calling, and Mary can no longer view him as she once did, as a, in a sense, subordinate son. He is no less her son. Jesus is no less Mary's son, but all of his ties, all of his family loyalties must be subordinated to this God given mission. Now, Mary must come to Jesus, not as his mother, but in the same way as everyone else who is human and wicked and sinful and in need of a savior. That is how Mary must now approach Jesus. And she must relate to him as the son of God. And their relationship at this point now, will never be the same. Now understand, Mary knew this was coming. Simeon in Luke had prophesied that this would happen to Mary. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, Simeon is prophesying over this new baby, and he is Mary and And Joseph are there, and Simeon says, And a sword, speaking to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, he's speaking about what is going to happen. You know, where it talks about that the families will be divided in the kingdom of God, and that mother and father, this is that moment. Mary is experiencing the kingdom of God coming on the scene in her son, and suddenly her, her place in Jesus' life is totally different. Mary is a woman of faith, though. Because in verse 5, she shakes off this gentle rebu- rebuke. Even though he said, what does this have to do with me? Why are you including me in this problem? My hour has not yet come. Now understand, when Jesus talks about my hour, he's talking about his crucifixion. And John uses hour as a code word throughout his gospel to refer to the crucifixion. And Mary 
Mary knows this. Mary shakes off this gentle rebuke. And in faith, she instructs the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Just obey him. Because it's not about me anymore. It's about him. Obey him. And Jesus responds by honoring her faith. She has moved from mother to believer. She has moved from just a natural relationship to a spiritual one. And now she is trusting her son. And she does not know he is going to perform a miracle. Because this is, as as John writes, this is the first of his signs. So it's not like Mary has seen Jesus turning little little pigeons, clay pigeons into real pigeons as a baby, or, you know, raising worms from the dead that he just killed. Um, no, 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 this isn't, this is the first sign that everyone sees. So Mary doesn't know what to expect. All she knows is, I'm encountering the Son of God right here. So John points out that Jesus uses six water pots, typically used for ritual purification. In Mark chapter 7, verse 3, and I'll I'll read it to you. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And so every time the Jews went somewhere, did something, they had purification water pots where they would wash their hands to become ceremonially clean. They would be clean on the outside, the very thing that Jesus charged them with wrongdoing, that they felt because they were clean on the outside, they were clean on the inside, and in reality, the reason he came is because we're not clean on the inside, we're filthy on the inside, and no matter how good we look on the outside, we're whitewashed tombs. And these stone pots are at this wedding, rightly so, for this ritual purification. And so the servants do as they're told, and a miracle is wrought. A sign as, as they see. The servants see a miracle. The servants know about this. Mary knows about this. And the disciples know about this. The master of the ceremonies, the, the master of the feast, is clueless about what happened. He was, he's clueless. He doesn't know what goes on here. Now, why this story? Why does John include this story in his gospel for you and me? Well, because signs show us who Jesus is. There are seven signs in John's gospel that we will study. The water to wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, the healing of a man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. All meant to point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, that we might believe and that by believing we might find life in his name. The backdrop of John twenty thirty one. This wedding story is included here because it's a gospel story. It's a story of God's amazing grace. The creator has become one of us. Fully man, yet fully God, and he is still powerful over creation. He changes men and women from sinners to saints as powerfully as he does water 
to why. It is a gospel story. And here is my proposition long in getting to, I know, but the new wine of Jesus' grace, the new wine of Jesus' grace is available to those who trust in the spilled wine of Jesus' blood for their salvation. The new wine of Jesus' grace is available to those who trust in the spilled wine of Jesus' blood for their salvation. And my two main points this morning are simply this. In Jesus, the old has gone. In Jesus, the old is gone. And in Jesus, number two, the new has come. In Jesus, the old has gone. In the coming of Jesus, the old is gone. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things are gone, the new has come. This wedding story reveals not only who Jesus is, but what his coming means. No longer, as we see, as as John writes about these water purification rites and these these stone jars, this story allows us to see that that the old things that connected men to God, being clean on the outside, the old ways, the law, no longer was the connection between God and man. There is a new wine. We cannot cleanse ourselves from our sin, our depravity, our wickedness. The old rituals of temple worship and ritual cleansing and temporary atonement through the slaughter of lambs are done away with And no longer do they connect with God. Old wine can't be put into new wineskins. The religious leaders of John's day did not get this. They did not get that the old is gone. They they lived to justify themselves in their self-righteousness. They believed that their behavior made them acceptable to God. Big jars of purification water are meaningless in the kingdom of God. The old is gone. That's what John is revealing here. We can't justify ourselves. We couldn't do it prior to coming to Christ and we can't justify ourselves as Christians. To attempt to do so is legalistic and it takes grace completely out of the picture. Legalism legalism is not a confusing idea. Legalism is not our behavior. It's simply the belief that you can earn God's favor by your behavior. That you can earn God's acceptance by your behavior. It's the belief of what you do. The behavior, legalism is not behavior. Jesus, in his gospels, you read, tells you to obey his command. Paul, in his epistles, consistently gives you commands, imperatives that you are to follow, you are to obey. That's not legalistic. To obey those, to pursue holiness, is not legalistic. What is legalistic is the belief you have that my behavior now brings me before God with favor. Nothing brings you before God with favor except grace. The water has to be turned into wine. Grace is what makes this acceptable 
to God. And grace is what empowers us to obey. The new wine of God's grace has replaced the old. That's the first point. John is making here that new wine has come. The old ways of of relating to God are gone. And secondly, in the coming of Jesus, the new has come. We are being changed into Christ's image. The story is not just about a wedding Jesus and his disciples attended, but about a signpost that points to an end-time real wedding. This natural wedding is about a final wedding. Do you understand that? It's, It's not about... This story about a wedding is to, is to open our eyes, your eyes, to a wedding yet to come. The miracle at Cana is a signpost wedding that points to the glory of the best wedding, that wedding yet to come. Jesus begins his ministry by showing how his ministry will end. His ministry ends with a marriage Supper with the Lamb of God. This story is about abundant wine and abundant grace. Jesus turns what are approximately 150 gallons of water into wine. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though his servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, in other words, they get a bit inebriated, they can't really taste the wine, it's not going to be, you know, it's just, it's the old stuff, the Boone's Farm apple wine, it's the, it's the stuff that nobody likes. But you have kept the good wine until now. John shines a spotlight on the abundance of, of what God has done here in turning this water into wine. And not only the abundance of 150 gallons of water being turned into wine, but being turned into the best wine, to the superior wine. Jesus, Jesus is, is, oh, there's so much here that is, rich in preparing our minds and our hearts for this future this future crucifixion and this future resurrection because this great wine you think Jesus had to drink the cup of a bitter wine the wine of God's wrath that we might be able to as his children feast at a wedding in the age to come What do we know about the new wine, the new and abundant wine in this story? This wine represents God's grace. And here's what we know about God's grace. God's grace is always abundant towards you. Six stone water jars. 
150 gallons. I mean, that's a lot of wine. I can't imagine running out from that wine. God's grace is the same way. It is always abundant to you. God's grace comes to you only through Jesus Christ. It does not come through ritual purification with water. It does not come from earning your way by your your behavior to, to God's throne. No, no. God's grace comes to us, comes to you only through Jesus Christ. God's grace keeps you until the final wedding feast to come. Grace isn't just for the moment. Grace is for eternity. Nothing surpasses the superior taste of God's grace in Christ. Look at the best wine being served. It was served afterwards, not before. Why? Because it was the wine, it was the the miracle of Christ turning water to wine. And what Jesus turned into, into wine was the superior. God's grace always reveals God's glory. This, in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This sign manifested the glory of God and the response to the glory of God is this, and his disciples believed. God's grace leads us to believe. But understand this, not everyone believed. It says here, and his disciples believed in him. But who else knew that the water had been turned into wine? The servants. The servants. The servants, maybe the guests, maybe the master of the house at some point. But only his disciples saw the glory of God. Only his disciples believed. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, let me encourage you not to be like the servants, but to be like the disciples. To put your faith in Jesus Christ, the grace that he offers you in his death and his resurrection, that you might be turned from a sinner into a saint, from water to wine, that you would experience the miraculous transforming power of the gospel, that you would respond to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Don't be like the servant, please. Oh, be like the disciples. So what is the application here? For this wedding, this miracle of turning water to wine. Well, the first thing is this. Grace has come to you in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what we read in, in, chapter, in chapter 1? Grace and truth. Do you remember? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We don't have to live by the law anymore. Grace and truth have come to us. You can and should drink of this superior wine now. This superior wine is, Paul describes as the unfathomable riches of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. That's what the wine is now. And it is yours in abundance. 
There's no end. Unfathomable means no end. You can and should drink. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. If you've taken refuge in Christ, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. You can taste and see this new wine, this wine of God's grace. Oh, Christ came for this. Christ died for this. Christ rose from the dead for this. Christ dwells among us for this. Christ sent the Spirit for this. That you would know grace. That is present grace. But there is a future grace. Secondly, allow your anticipation of the final wedding to come, motivate you to remain firm and faithful to the end. This final wedding is the celebration. This final day is the celebration where new wine will flow beyond your imagination. There is a day when our lives no longer exist on this earth, where we have passed from this life into a new one. There is a day when all things will be consummated, when God will bring all things together in Christ, and it is called a wedding feast. The Lamb of God will have this wedding feast. John writes in Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have come to faith in Christ, you already have the invitation in hand. The grace that you experience today in your life, the grace that you see in the lives of others, will pale in comparison to the grace you see on that day. You think you understand grace now. You think you see grace now. You have not begun to see grace. You have not begun. And this story of of this water being turned into wine, of the transforming power of God, of what was water turning into the most superior wine, is a picture of what God has done for us and is doing in us and will do for us on that final day. Brothers and sisters, the story of the wedding at Cana is an end time story. It's a shadow of a glorious wedding feast to come for all who believe. Now, we can celebrate that wedding now. We can celebrate as we do, as we worship in Christ now, as we sing songs, as we read our Bible, as we spend time with the Lord, as we as we fellowship with one another, we experience something of that wedding celebration. That really is, that really is heaven on earth for us. But we haven't yet to experience heaven on earth the way this story prepares us for. Oh, Father, thank you for the wedding yet to come. 
But Lord, thank you for the grace you've given us to sustain us, transform us, to hold us firm to the end that we might celebrate with you at that final wedding feast. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you, that you would give them faith in you and what you have done for them. And I pray, Father, for those who, who, are, who are struggling and being, being faithful and remaining firm, that you would extend your abundant grace to them, that they would feel your presence. Lord, bless your church this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.